Let me pray for our time in God's Word together. Our Heavenly Father, You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy to be adored and praised. And uh, Father, as we think about this time, once again we're reminded of the awesome privilege of opening up Your Word. I pray for soft and tender hearts that are receptive to what You would have to say to us this morning. Lord, help us to walk away from here being people who are changed people who are challenged to live differently in the light of what we will be looking at, people who are challenged to view you in a different light, that your glory and your splendor would be manifested to us all the more and propel us to a life of devotion to you in prayer. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're working through a very important uh, series called uh, the Distinctives Series, Calvary Distinctives. Uh, and if you've been here the last couple of Sundays, we've looked at the first two of these. These are really biblical priorities or essential principles that we desire uh, would guide and govern the way that we do ministry here at Calvary Bible Church. And so we've seen the first two of these Calvary Distinctives. Uh, Calvary Distinctive number one, we said that the Calvary Bible Church is a Bible-centered church, if you remember. We believe the Bible, and we want to continue to affirm its truthfulness and its reliability, precisely because the Word of God is the inerrant, infallible, and sufficient Scripture. It comes to us from God. And therefore, in everything that we do here at Calvary Bible Church, we want to, we want to make sure that the, that the Word of God is central, that it's the driving force behind all that we do. The Word of God, as you know, is preached from this pulpit, but it's preached from other pulpits here at the church as well, in fellowship groups, and student ministries, in our children's ministry, and that's really the way that it should be, so that the Word of God shapes us, so that it transforms the way that we uh, look uh, at life. The Word of God is the main topic of conversations in a lot of our small groups here at Calvary Bible Church. You know, there's men's and women's ministries, small groups, one-on-ones. We're constantly evaluating those as elders and making sure that, that those contexts of smaller groups and, and subunits of the church are, are, are Bible-centered. Because those smaller groups or contexts really provided a, a wonderful opportunity for Christians to come alongside of one another. And in, the, in a relational way, as we get to know one another, we're able to speak the truth of the Word of God in love to one another. Because we want to be doers of the word who are continually being conformed into the image of Christ. Amen? We want, but even Bible-centered doesn't just mean hearing preaching or being devoted to preaching. It also means taking the word of God and praying, thoughtfully praying, and talking to others about how we might apply the word of God to our life and be conformed into the image of Christ. We are a Bible-centered church, and we want to continue to cultivate that kind of culture into the future as a body. Distinctive number two, Calvary Bible Church is a Christ-exalting church. We uh, said last week that we are a, a church that is committed to the gospel, the good news, centered on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the one who is the resurrected, ascended, and exalted Lord of the universe. And therefore, by virtue of who He is, as the exalted one, and what He has done, and what He requires from us, He is to be the supreme object of our worship, of our joyful praises, personally, in small groups, collectively, as a corporate body as well. 
We who have come to know Christ also realize that if we're a Christ-exalting church, then we are here on this earth to love and to serve Christ and to be conformed into the image. And we are to be in the process and the diligently of making other disciples who will do the same, who want to love and serve Christ and be conformed into the image as well. We are a Christ-exalting church. Well, today we, want, we have the privilege of looking at God's Word and looking at Calvary Distinctive Number 3. And it is this. Calvary Bible Church is a God-dependent church. Calvary Bible Church is a God-dependent church. And I want to ask you this question. What does it mean in your life personally to be God-dependent? What does it mean to live a life patterned for trusting in God? You know, there was an instance in the ministry of our Lord when the disciples had been discussing amongst themselves who was the greatest. And Jesus, knowing that they had been discussing this particular thing, uh, asked them a question very pointed, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then... He took a little child to himself as an object lesson and told them, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So our Lord, um, as an answer to their discussion concerning who was the greatest, made the point to them that unless you become totally dependent as a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God or achieve greatness. You must come into the kingdom in humble dependence, broken over your sin, embracing Him. Beloved, living dependent upon God is the way kingdom citizens think and should live. Isn't this what happened to you when you came to know Christ? Before coming to know Christ, you trusted in yourself. You trusted in your own goodness. You trusted in your own good works. As if those things were going to gain acceptance before the Lord. You trusted in your abilities, your talents, etc., But then God transformed you. And having been convicted of your sins, there was this this transfer of trust from self to God by faith in Christ. There was a noticeable transition and pattern from self-trust to trust in God. And the gospel call to follow Christ is really a call to surrender trust in yourself and to direct your trust to Christ alone as the only hope of salvation from your sins. That is true, and that is the case not only at the moment of conversion, when the Lord transforms you, that you die to self and you embrace Christ, you're alive in Christ now. But it should be the the pattern for the rest of your Christian life. You should strive by the power of God's indwelling Spirit to no longer trust in yourself, but continually look to God in childlike dependence. In faith. You know, we can talk about Christian maturity and um, define what it means for somebody to be spiritually mature as a believer. And we might look to things like holiness. For somebody to be spiritually mature, there's this passionate pursuit to be holy, to be putting off sin, and to be putting on Christ and his righteousness in a practical way and pursuing holiness. 
We might also talk about somebody who is spiritually mature as being a, a person who's characterized for, by, by love for God and for his people. That you are, you are one who, who seeks to, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love God and manifest that love by loving and serving your brethren. We might talk about Christian maturity also as, as a person who's joyfully, who's characterized by joyful obedience. That your life is characterized by obeying what the Lord says. All of those things, I think, are true of a spiritually mature person. Pursuing holiness, loving God and His people, joyful obedience. But I would also submit to us that you, wanna, you want to see a spiritually mature person. What they're marked by, they must be marked by God dependence. A spiritually mature believer is marked by trust in the Lord. So we want to be a church and a people, beloved, that cultivates a strong culture of dependence and trust in God. And so this morning, I want to answer two questions for us. Two questions. First of all, what fuels our trust in God as individuals and corporately? What fuels our trust and dependence upon God as individuals and corporately? And then the second question I want to answer is this. How do we flesh out a genuine, authentic, passionate dependence upon God? So twofold question or two questions here that we're going to answer, okay? First of all, what fuels our trust in God? That is, what motivates a person to, as a pattern of life, walk in humble dependence upon the Lord? What propels you to pursue the Lord in humble, passionate, continual prayer? Not only as an individual, but you're driven to corporate prayer as well. I would submit to you that it's this. A humble, high view of God. A high view of God fuels our trust in God. Our running to Him. The higher our view of God and the more we cultivate a high view of God, the more we will be driven to depend upon our God in prayer. In the everyday moments, the mundane moments of life, we will be more conscious of the fact that He is there with us. The higher our view of Him is. God-dependent people cultivate a high view of God. And that's the kind of church that we want to be. We want to preach and teach and shepherd you so that you, you are directing your attention to the glory and the majesty of God all the more. We want you to be devoted to relationships with one another whereby you are, you are saturating one another with the word of God and pointing one another toward a Godward focus. So that you rise above your circumstances, your physical disabilities, the trials that you're going through, and look to, to God who is more than able to be your help in time of trouble. Listen, beloved, trust in God is rooted in who God is. Our theology drives our practice. You want to talk about a person, you want, you want to ask the question, why is a person in a pattern of sin, why are there prevailing sins in our lives that we're not able to overcome? And I can tell you this, many times in counseling, what it comes down to is a wrong view of God. Many times what I end up doing is trying to correct that particular person's view of God, and that ends up driving them to God all the more and to greater holiness in their life. 
a high view of God, His character, His divine perfections, His majesty and glory fuels your trust and my trust, our dependence upon the Lord, beloved. And in particular, I want to draw our attention to two attributes of God. Two attributes of God. God's sovereignty and God's love that fuel a God-dependent Christian and fuel a God-dependent church. First of all, God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. What is the sovereignty of God? How might we define that? Well, the sovereignty of God refers to God's supreme rule and absolute authority over all things. To say that God is sovereign is to point to His kingship and His comprehensive and total dominion over everything. It has to do with the fact that God has no rivals. God is the unrivaled king of the universe. He has comprehensive authority and rule over his creatures and his creation. This goes for the great heavenly entities that we behold and the majestic planets and stars and the sun and the moon. God is in absolute control over above those entities. And he does as he pleases with them. And that goes also for the tiniest little molecule that if left to itself would would wreak havoc in God's creation. God is intricately and completely and comprehensively sovereign over the big things and the small things in His creation. And God's Word is full hundreds of passages that highlight this sovereignty, the supreme authority over all things. Listen to Psalm 103 and verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. And then listen to this. In response to God's sovereignty and to the fact that God has established His throne in the heavens, listen to the psalmist. Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all you His hosts, you who serve Him, doing His will. Bless the Lord, all you works of His. In all places of His dominion, bless the Lord, O my soul. To the psalmist, God's absolute control and dominion and sovereignty over everything drove him to worship God and to trust Him with joy. It was his comfort that God was completely and sovereign over everything. Psalm 47 and verse 2. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great King over all the earth. Psalm 47 and verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17 says that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom He wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. In other words, God does as He pleases according to His own will. He works in His creation and His creatures. Nobody can stop Him. These passages highlight the sovereignty of God, His supreme rule and authority over His universe and His uh, a creature big and small. This last Tuesday morning was a great time with the elders of, of uh, reading the Word of God in prayer. And Greg Rhodes directed us to read Job chapters 38 through 42. And we were reminded how Job, toward the end of his trials, realized that God had used all of his trials and sufferings to bring him to the point of humble realization that God was in utter control of his life. 
God wanted to teach him some amazing things, and he had to go through those sufferings for him to learn to trust in a God who was absolutely in control over all creation and Job's life as well. And listen to Job's conclusion in chapter 42. After his trials and his sufferings are coming to a conclusion, at least from what we know, in Job chapter 42, Job answers the Lord and says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. In other words, Job has learned some things going through these trials. Verse 4, Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes seize you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. At the end of Job's trials, those trials led Job closer to the Lord, closer to his maker, and to the realization that God was in utter control and sovereign over his life. What a great time that was to be assured of the sovereignty of our great God. And beloved, listen, you and I will never learn to trust God. Unless our view of him grows and is heightened, and in particular his, his sovereignty. I find it so unfortunate that over the years the sovereignty of God is such a, a stumbling block for some believers. That it's, a, it's this topic of, of debate, this de- debate doctrine. And oftentimes Christians spend so much time just arguing over the meaning and the significance of God's sovereignty. I remember doing that early in my Christian walk as well. You know, over the years, the more you grow in the, and you mature in Christ, the more you realize that God's sovereignty actually is a comfort doctrine. It is a comfort doctrine for the believer. It is encouraging, is it not? It is a hope-giving doctrine. Because listen, if God is sovereign, then God has unlimited power and wisdom to do anything that He chooses to do. So think about those things that you want so desperately in life. Those things that you want to happen. Those things that God has not given you from your own perspective. Those things that are driving you to bitterness and resentment and discontentment before the Lord. Think about those things. That if it was the will of God for something to take place in your life, wouldn't our sovereign God have the power to bring that particular thing about? He would. Maybe the answer right now is wait, right? And later on, he might say yes to that particular request. But those things that we want and desire so desperately and that become the the source of discontentment and bitterness in our lives, situations or circumstances, people or interpersonal relationships, trials, physical issues, God wants us perhaps to live well under those things because if he could take it away, beloved, he would. He has the power to do it. It's a comfort to me. How comforting it is to know that if if God has not given you a particular thing or brought about a particular outcome in your life, then it must not be his will, will at least in the present time for you to do that particular thing, for you to have that particular thing. If it was his will... 
And he who is sovereign and thus unlimited in power is more than able to bring that to pass, beloved. And not only that, but think about this. God who is infinite in wisdom, having all understanding and all comprehensive knowledge about the big things and the little things, if he doesn't want you to have that particular thing, then listen to this. It must not be what is best for you. And we who have limited knowledge and limited wisdom can't be the ones who ultimately determine what is best for us. When God, who is infinite in wisdom and knowledge and power and knows all things, has not brought that about because he knows exactly what is best for you. How comforting that is. This has implications, beloved, for our worrying and our anxiety as well that many of us struggle with. Because God is sovereign, you and I don't have to live with worry and anxiety. It's going to happen. We're weak, vulnerable, frail human beings. But we don't have to live there, beloved. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And I want to show you the implications of living under the sovereignty of God for our anxiety and our worry. 1 Peter chapter 5. It's a wonderful passage. In verse 5. Peter exhorts younger men likewise to be subject to your elders. And all of you, he says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And the motivation is for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then look at what he says in verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Notice that exhortation in verse 6, to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Notice the exhortation that if we are going to humble ourselves, then we must recognize something about God. What is that? His mighty hand over our lives. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is an allusion to God's sovereignty, to His absolute mighty dominion and authority over everything. And these believers were being exhorted and instructed by Peter here. They were beginning to to suffer persecution and opposition in their own experience. And Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then what does that look like for them and for us? To humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Look at verse 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What is the expression of a person who lives with an acknowledgement of God's sovereign, mighty hand over his or her life? It is this you will be committed to casting your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And precisely because of the fact that he is mighty, because he is sovereign over your life. And the idea here in verse 7 is make an effort. Give maximum effort to casting your anxiety on him because he cares for you. There is a sporting event in Scotland and Ireland, and I believe a couple of other countries where one of the games is basically this, this wooden beam casting. And um, the objective is to pick up that wooden beam so that it turns end over end, falling away from the tosser. It's an interesting sport. Big guys do this. The interesting thing about it, of course, is that the wooden beam is not small. You're talking about a close to 20-foot wooden beam and close to approximately 200 pounds. That's the big challenge. 
And so these guys get under this, this particular uh, beam and they get, engage every muscle trying to balance this thing out and then exert maximum force when they toss this thing away from them. You see these guys and all of the muscles moving so that they would succeed in this objective, exerting maximum force to cast this thing away from themselves. Beloved, that's the idea of verse 7. Make maximum effort. Cast your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Because He's a sovereign God who is mighty. And these believers were to do the same thing. In experiencing opposition, they were to humble themselves under God's mighty hand as well. I'll tell you what, this casting is a sure sign as a pattern in our lives that we are living trusting Him. How many of us have anxieties and worries in our lives and yet we never go to God? This verse would tell us, if indeed you believe that God's mighty hand is at work, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and cast that anxiety upon Him because He loves you, because He cares for you. What a great comfort. One theologian has written this, quote, Worry or anxiety shows a sort of practical atheism, end quote. So true, isn't it? We can affirm the existence of God and even certain things about His character, but we don't really believe many times that He's actually able to help us in our time of trouble. Often, even in the midst of our difficulties, we don't even remember that God is the great game-changer. That He is more than able to change things around. And we don't seek Him. So what fuels a God-dependent person? Answer, a high view of God's sovereignty first and foremost. Secondly, a high view of God's love. A high view of God's love. Turn to Romans chapter 8. And I want to show you this. Romans chapter 8. The more you and I understand and are assured of God's love for us, the more we will be driven to humble dependence upon Him. You know why? Because you don't naturally seek after someone whom you are not convinced loves you. Think about that. If you are convinced that God loves you, then you're going to seek His face. And here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, Paul reminds believers of the wonderful assurance and security that they should have in light of God's love as seen in their lives. Look at this. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? I think that these things are pointing back to God's work in salvation. The fact that God has sent His own Son into the world to die for you. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us in Christ... Who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And here's his point. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And notice, in light of God's love, Paul says this in verse 38, For I am convinced... 
that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is Paul saying? If God gave His own Son for our salvation, and He went to the extent of saving sinners, wretched sinners such as you and I, what can possibly else separate us? Answer, nothing. Because He's already displayed in the greatest act of love on our behalf, the sending of His Son for sinners such as you and I. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, beloved. And an understanding and a comprehension of God's love, all the more in your life in the gospel as shown to you in the gospel of Christ should propel you to run to God in humble dependence all the more because He loves you. He loves you. You know, oftentimes we shy away from running to Him because we think He rejects us. We begin to slowly but surely find our identity and our performance as Christians rather than in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. And God's love shown to us in Christ Jesus. And once we do this, we drift away from Him. We retreat from God rather than seek His face and walk in humble dependence upon Him. But a greater comprehension of His love, beloved, for us When you and I understand that and we meditate upon that love and we reflect upon it, it should actually drive us to our knees in humble dependence upon Him, knowing that we can trust Him. He who has already performed the greatest act of love on our behalf. I don't know about you, but the more I understand God's grace and His love and His mercy for me, the more I want to be holy as well. The more I want to be like Him. The more it motivates me to want to love my brethren. But when I'm, so, I'm, I'm looking to self, and I'm focused on my performance and what I'm not doing, then all of a sudden, I just become introverted and very selfish in my own life. I need to look to God and what He's done in Christ, all the more that it may propel me to holiness, to put off sin and put on the mind of Christ, and to love my brethren in the power of the Spirit of God. We can seek the Lord because He loves us, beloved. And listen, because He loves us, we can trust Him for His provision. Amen? We can trust Him for His provision. Look at Matthew chapter 6. A beautiful passage, Matthew chapter 6. Turn there. This is the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever existed, our Lord Jesus And in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, he warns concerning serving two masters. And those two masters are either God or wealth, money, mammon. No one can serve two masters, Matthew 6, 24, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or wealth. And then he expands upon this. Because one of, the, one of the, the manifestations of a love of money, believe it or not, is anxiety or worry over very basic things. So he says in verse 25, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In other words... Don't worry about the basic things that you need. Look at the birds of the air, verse 26. 
Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. And then here is a rebuke, right? Verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? What a rebuke, huh? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things, all of these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. So where should our focus be upon? Rather than being anxious and being worried, we should cast our anxiety upon the Lord, trusting in Him because He's sovereign, because He loves us. And where should we be focused upon, beloved? Look at verse 33. But seek First, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What things? The basic things that you need. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In other words, why are you worried? Why are you anxious? As God knows that his cre- what his creatures need and he cares for them, God knows what you and I need as the crown of His creation, and we can trust Him, beloved, because He's sovereign, and He shows His great love for us by caring for those things that are our basic needs. How comforting of a passage that is. The love of God, as seen in His faithful provision for us, fuels us to bow in humble, continual, passionate dependence upon Him, beloved the more we understand His tender care for us. Now listen, a high view of God's sovereignty and a high view of God's love does not mean, of course, that when there are needs in someone's life or there are needs in the church, we simply kind of throw up our hands up and say, well, God is sovereign and He loves you. May God be with you guys. Right? No. As James would say, be warmed and be filled. And we don't meet the needs that are there. Neither God's sovereignty nor His love remove our responsibility, beloved, to be the willing means by which God helps His people. Amen? We are the means by which God provides many times. This is what is so precious and amazing about God. You know, God is more than able to provide, beloved. He's more than able to do anything that He wants to do. He doesn't need Kempis Hernandez. He doesn't need you. Everything that we have belongs to Him. We are simply stewards of that which God has given us. He doesn't need any of us. He owns the cattle on the thousand hills. And yet, listen, He graciously uses us to accomplish His will because He wants us to experience the blessing that comes from helping meet needs. And that is a privilege and that is a blessing. And God in His goodness and in His love for us wants us to experience that. And so He uses us in people's lives to be a blessing to others, to be evidences of God's grace in the lives of other people. 
You know, this is especially true to remember in financially strenuous times, right? Uh, Those of you who are members of Calvary Bible Church just received a letter. Maybe you haven't seen it yet, but it should have gotten to you from the elders and myself. Just basically giving you more, just important, deliberate communication because we want to work on being better communicators of deliberate, helpful information to you as our church family. That was the spirit and heart of the letter. And on there you saw that there's struggles financially here in our church. That over the last six months in particular, um, approximately $63,000 were spent under what we have spent. Or we came in under. Giving over the past six months is approximately sixty-three grand under what we have spent. That is in an already trimmed down budget, beloved. And we're looking for more ways of trimming budget. Thankfully, the Lord has provided a reserve over the years to make up the difference. But we have come to a point where we simply cannot sustain ministry in the same way anymore. And so unless things change, we are now left to further reduce staff here at Calvary. Some of you are aware of that already. Now, beloved, listen. God is more than able to provide, and He always has. More than able to provide, and He always has. But His sovereign and loving provision does not eliminate our responsibility to be obedient to God in the area of giving and practical, biblical generosity with His resources that He's given us. It doesn't strip us of our responsibility. I want you to see something here in Philippians chapter 4. Turn there. Philippians chapter 4. I am always interested in setting any needs, even financial ones, in the context of God's word. Because we need to have a God word focus and learn to trust in our great God. Amen? What does he say in his word about giving? About Investment into the progress toward the progress of the gospel. The Philippians were a dear church to Paul, and he had been with them. And one of the things that were, was so characteristic of the Philippians is that on a number of occasions they had helped them. Uh, his ministry supported his ministry for the progress of the gospel. And in chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 10, he begins to affirm them and commend them for yet another time that they have helped them because Epaphroditus, one of their members, has visited Paul in jail, almost dies on the way. And one of the reasons Epaphroditus is visiting Paul was to bring more financial support to him and to help him toward the progress of the gospel. And so he affirms the Philippians in verse 10. Look at what he says. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And the opportunity was Epaphroditus now visiting Paul with the resources that they had given. Before he continues commending the Philippians, he goes off on a little tangent for three verses here on contentment contentment and he says in verse 11 not that i speak from want for i have learned to be content in whatever circumstances i am i know how to get along with humble means and i also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance i have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need i can do all things through christ who strengthens me in other words paul says god has taught me contentment He has taught me how to live and dwell well in humble means, meaning poverty, or in times of prosperity. 
God has always provided. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's taught me contentment. Now, having told him about his contentment, he continues with the commendation in verse 14. Notice, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent to give more than once for my needs. In other words, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for your generosity. I am content. At the end of the day, God provides for, has taught me contentment. He provides for me in humble means as well as in prosperity. Nevertheless, you've done well. And I want you to know and I want to commend you and affirm you that you've done well. Verse 17, notice. Not that I seek the gift itself. It's not about the money, is Paul, what Paul is saying here. It's not about the financial provision in and of itself, Philippians. And notice what he says. But I seek for the profit or the fruit which increases to your account. It's not about the financial gift. It is about your fruitfulness before the Lord, in other words. Paul is affirming them and commending them because in supporting Paul and the gospel... They are profiting and they are being fruitful. How beautiful is that? God could have provided anyway. And in other times, He had provided abundantly for Paul, not through the Philippians, not through the Macedonian churches, through other churches. God could have provided through anybody. And yet, the Philippians had become the means by which God had provided for Paul. And thus, the progress of the gospel, which is the bigger picture, right? The advancement of the cause of Christ, of the kingdom of Christ. Notice verse 18. But I have received everything in full and have in abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. And I want you to hear how Paul describes the gift. He doesn't say, uh, the Epaphroditus, the money that you sent, the resources that you sent. Notice what he calls... What, what Epaphroditus has delivered to him. He says, A fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. This is sacrificial language, worship language. It was their giving to Paul for the greater progress of the gospel was an act of worship, of worship before the Lord. Their sacrificial offering pleased the Lord, beloved. It was a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and it rose to the nostrils of God, and he was pleased and glorified by the Philippians contributing to the progress of the gospel. And notice verse 19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a beautiful, beautiful passage. God blessed the Philippians by using them in his sovereignty as the means to advance the gospel through the Apostle Paul. And I want to encourage each of us this morning as to how the Lord may be calling each of us who are members of this church, who call Calvary Bible Church home to respond to the need at hand, beloved. You know, many of you are such faithful givers. We commend you for that. We don't even know who you are. 
But you are sacrificial, you're calculated and you're giving, prayerful, you consistently give to the progress of the gospel in and through this church. I want to commend you for that and thank you. Others of us who call CBC home and were members of this church need to realize that giving, like any other act of worship to the Lord, is just that, worship. It is worship, beloved. It is an act of loving obedience to to practice sacrificial, calculated, and consistent giving. And I want to lovingly exhort you to examine where you are at in this crucial area. Only you know that before the Lord. If you are one of those faithful saints who is giving for the greater progress of the gospel. And for all of us, again, the Lord doesn't need our money, right? He doesn't. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Even what is currently in your bank account and what you own, beloved, it's a stewardship. God owns it all. God owns it all. However, as Paul told the Philippians here, We as your elders do desire that God may bless you and that God may be glorified in the way that you practice faithful giving before him. Amen? So question number one, what fuels our dependence on God? It's a high view of his sovereignty and his love. And secondly, second question I want to answer for us. How do we flesh out, how do we flesh out a genuine and authentic dependence upon God? In other words, what does God dependence look like in the life of his church? And I have three practical exhortations in answer to that question, okay? Two very obvious ones and one not so obvious. The first very obvious one is this. We as a church must be devoted to being a praying church. We must be a praying church. All the more, beloved, we should be striving to cultivate a culture here in our body of being God-dependent people. And the ultimate expression of that is in the way that we pray individually and collectively as a body. That is the greatest expression of God-dependent people. This has implications for you personally, on a personal level. I want to ask you, how committed are you to humble dependence that shows itself in secret prayer before the Lord? What does that look like in your life? One theologian has written this. Prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. Prayerlessness is our declaration of independence from God. Think about that. When you and I don't pray, even if we don't realize it, essentially we are operating independent of God. Relying upon our own strength. Living as if we don't need Him. That is the message that is coming from our lives. You want to find out just how God-dependent you are? How much time do you spend in secret before the Lord? Personally. In humble, passionate, continual prayer before the Lord. Where nobody else is watching you. Where nobody else can hear your prayers. Are you spending time seeking the Lord? Another pastor has written this, Who a man or woman is in private, consistent prayer before God, that he is, and nothing greater. Who a man is in private, consistent prayer before God, that he is, and nothing greater. So convicting, but so true. This also has implications for our corporate prayer time together. Corporately. 
You know, we often focus upon the exhortations and the instructions to prayer. And we get all riled up about those. And then we go to our home and it's all a secret prayer, right? Do you realize that the exhortations of Scripture mostly are directed at churches? Corporate bodies. They are commands. We are to be praying together. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2 says this, Devote yourselves to prayer. Notice, plural, together. There's that corporate element there. And that's a command to devote ourselves to prayer. And it is a continuous command. In other words, this is what is to characterize us as a corporate body, being a praying church, being together, praying together. The more we pray together, by the way, the more that that will lead, beloved, to unity and like-mindedness as we seek God's word and prayer together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, pray without ceasing. In other words, pray continually again to the corporate body of Thessalonica. It's a command. Pray without ceasing. This is to be the continual devotion that should characterize the Thessalonian believers that they pray together unceasingly. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Beloved, listen. This is why your presence, at, as much as you can, at corporate prayer events is so essential and so important that we be praying together. Even if you have to stand up with the little baby in the back and you're there with the corporate body praying together, that is a very good thing. This is why we should shower and bathe all that we do as a church in prayer. Listen, prayer is not just an add-on or a spiritual thing that we do in the main service. Something that we just feel like it's the spiritual thing to open up in prayer. In small groups, in our corporate worship service, Sunday evenings, We do this because we want to be humble, dependent people. Amen? That's the kind of church that we want to be. We want to be praying and seeking the Lord together. And beloved, tonight is a perfect application of this, of corporate prayer together. We would love to see the great room full tonight of Calvary members. At 5 o'clock to hear an update, to, to uh, look at God's word together, and then enter a time of corporate prayer together for the needs here at Calvary Bible Church. And there's going to be a little half sheet of 18 things that we ought to be praying together as a church continually. And we're going to devote that time to seeking the face of God all together. I hope every single one of you makes it tonight, that that room is full. Secondly, second practical manifestation is this. We must be cultivating a higher view of God. Not only should we be devoted to being a praying church, we must cultivate a higher view of God. I've already, the first half of my message has been focused upon that. But it should go without saying, beloved, read the word of God so that you might know your great God. Look for the attributes of God and the character of God as you spend time in God's word. How many of you open up your, 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 your Bible and you're looking for those wonderful things about God? that allow you to rise above your circumstances and your difficulties in life to having a greater Godward focus. 
to being fixated upon the glory of God. Ask yourself, what is God teaching me about Himself in this passage, in this narrative? What is it that He wants me to know about Himself? And how does that address a sin in my life? Maybe my lack of faith and dependence upon Him. Beloved, ask yourself those questions in your times of reading the Word of God. Read great books on the character and the attributes of God. Knowing God by J.I. Packer, a classic, right? Wonderful book. The Attributes of God by Arthur Pink. Knowledge of the Holy, Tozer. <laughs> For um, a few, a few uh, days ago, somebody shared with me that their, their husband actually took me up on the exhortation from the pulpit a few months ago to, to read the existence and attributes of God by Stephen Charnock. He went out and he read the whole thing in like a few days. It took me three years to read that thing. I mean, that's a great book. The existence and attributes of God. You want your view of God to heighten so that you're propelled and driven and fueled to prayer personally and corporately as a body? Heighten your view of God, beloved. In and through His Word and through great classic books that are solid. Thirdly, this one not so obvious. Thirdly, we must be striving to live what we believe what we believe about God. Live out or flesh out, put into practice what you believe to know about God. As you and I grow in our comprehension of the greatness of God, we are positioned to trust Him in a greater way, but you and I know that if we are not purposefully looking to put our theology into practice, it doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. So as you grow in your view of God and as you're driven to prayer, beloved, remember that the circumstances of life and the hard things and the trials that you go through, God expects you to respond to Him with obedient faith because of who He is. Practice what you know to be true of your great God. Put it into practice. John Frame has written this, quote, Theological propositions or statements, assertions about God. Theological propositions are useful only in the context of teaching that leads to spiritual health. In that sense, theology must be a practical discipline, not merely a theoretical one. Theology is the application of the word to all areas of life, end quote. To your thinking, to the way that you speak, to the way that you use your resources, to your actions, to your behavior. Theology must show itself, beloved, in our obedience. Putting into practice that which we believe about God. Isn't that what we, what we saw in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9-12? through 12, Where Paul prays for the believers that they would grow in their knowledge of God and His will. And then he says, So that you may walk worthy of the Lord. And then he talks about their fruitfulness. Grow in your knowledge of God and His will so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and that you may be fruitful in your service. Those are His prayers. Sound doctrine, sound healthy teaching, beloved, should lead to healthy living when accompanied by Spirit-empowered obedience. Sound doctrine should lead to sound living in your life. Some of us, however, are not growing because we're not intentional and we're not spirit-dependent as to how the Word of God applies to life. 
And I would tell you this too. The more you engage with other brothers and sisters in Christ, the more others can also help you understand how the Word of God may be addressing an issue in your life. That's also a corporate body element, is it not? What we know about God and His will, His promises should lead us to trusting in Him. This is why Proverbs 3.5 says this, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Trust the Lord, beloved, in light of the greatness of who He is. Be a God-dependent person. Many of you are familiar with George Mueller. He lived from 1805 to about 1898. And uh, George Mueller was a great man of faith, was he not? Great man of faith. Great man who just depended upon God. He was a God-dependent man. You know, he did a lot of amazing things in ministry, but he's known for uh, his orphanages in England where statistics showed, I don't know how they arrived at these, but that some, something like 10,000 orphans were cared for during his lifetime. Imagine that. Those are a lot of needs for, for, for a lot of little children. His orphanages in Bristol, England... He brought in countless children to clothe them and to feed them and to educate them. And you know what? The thing about George Mueller, when I read a couple of books that just talked about him, is that he rarely seemed to have brought those needs to, the, to, the, to other people. You know what was the secret of, his, uh, of this man's ministry? Prayer. Prayer. Constant prayer before God. He kept a journal where he recorded some 50,000 plus specific answers to his prayers. Many times saying that those prayers were answered within the day that he prayed them. He was a great man of faith. Imagine how many journals he had, right? Just about the faithfulness of God, bearing testimony of how God had provided for him and for many of those kids. It is estimated that God provided some half a billion dollars, according to our current present-day currency. Half, over half a billion dollars through his prayers for those orphanages and for those kids. Amazing, amazing. Mueller believed in a great God and he manifested this belief in prayer before the Lord in a passionate, continual way. He believed in the great God that he was praying to. He was a God-dependent man, beloved. And I pray that we would be God-dependent people. That we would be known as a church for being a God-dependent church. That in everything that we do in the life of our body, beloved, we will saturate everything with prayer and seeking our great God. Amen? Let me pray for us. And then Tim Adams is going to come on it. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we want to be God-dependent people. I want to be a God-dependent man, Lord. Empower us by your Spirit, Lord. Heighten our great view of you. Help us to see your majesty and your, your glory. Help us to see you for the wondrous God that you are. Help us to be, Lord, taken back in life-changing ways by your glory and your power and your sovereignty and your wisdom and your great love for us in Christ Jesus. Oh, Lord, may we rise above our circumstances and learn all the more to trust in you both as individuals and as a church. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.